when we look at our culture and we think about our culture, there are lots of common phrases that we hear today. One of the most common phrases that we hear today is, I deserve, or you deserve. We hear that in people say, you've gone through something, you've earned something, therefore you deserve something. Or, you deserve a break. You deserve something good to happen to you. You deserve a reward. You've worked hard. Another phrase that we hear today is this word of, I'm strong. This is one of the cultural ones right now. Strong women. Now, this has nothing to do with women. But when somebody says, I'm a strong woman or I'm a strong man, these are common phrases. It's, it's this thing that we, we use to kind of boost ourselves. And it's, a, it's this phrase that's being used all throughout our culture. Nobody wants to be seen as weak. And so they have to tell people that they're not weak, they're strong. It's interesting, isn't it? They declare what they are. Another phrase that we hear, give grace to yourself. Give grace to yourself. Not even sure how to do that. Grace is something that's offered to us. It's not something that we provide. But give grace to yourself. You need to love yourself. You need to love yourself. Okay. We used to call that selfishness. We used to call that self-centeredness. Now we celebrate it. We encourage people, love yourselves. I've got to love myself before I love you. Really? You need to forgive yourself. Well, forgiveness is something that's always offered to you, not something you do to yourself. But isn't it interesting that we don't think a lot about these statements? And isn't it interesting that these statements actually point us back to ourselves as the one who forgives, as the one who offers grace, as the one who loves, as the one who is the source of strength and is of deserving greatness. When in reality, all those statements do rob us of the humility that God has brought and is desiring to bring in our life so that he might be known and seen and might be praised. It robs him of his praise. You see, I deserve nothing. It is only by the mercy of God that I have life and goodness. I am not strong. I am weak, and it is in my weakness that God makes me strong. It is not I who am the source of my strength, but it is God who is the source of my strength. I wonder how the world would respond if we walked up to somebody and said, you know, I'm actually a really weak man. But i got to be honest with you. If you see strength in me, that's all God. What a different posture, huh? Give grace to yourself. Well, Christ has already given you his grace. The question is, will you receive it and believe it? Do you believe that Christ's grace is sufficient for you, that it has the power to bring healing to your life? It has the power to redeem you. Oh, loving yourself. Listen, if I could love myself, 
and believe it? I would. The problem is we all know how bad we really are. The truth is, is that we know that we're probably not worth loving. It is the fact that we have a Savior who loves us, which gives us hope, is it not? And forgiveness? Well, forgiveness I can't offer myself. But God has already offered it through His Son. Do you see how when we take those statements and we begin to adopt them as a culture and as Christians, we actually rob God of the praise that's due? Do you see how those things are subtle? How we actually make ourselves into God and we seek to glorify ourselves? These are statements that glorify man, not God. And yet God has called us to praise Him because He is the one who is worthy of praise. He is the one who glorifies us in Jesus. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of John the Baptist. And my hope is that as we look at the story of the birth of John the Baptist, is that we don't walk away with a deep sense of the goodness of this baby, but that we walk away with the great sense of a God who has a redemptive plan that is full of his mercy because we are in need of his mercy. So let's go ahead and read this passage together. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. And let's go ahead and stand as we read his word this morning. And this is what it says. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant of David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should, have, we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Lord God, this is your word. May we be encouraged this morning. May we be hopeful this morning. May we look forward to life in you and the newness to come. And may we praise you, God, regardless of what we experience, regardless of the circumstances of this life. May our lives be ones of praise before you, declaring what you have done and what you are doing. Lord, move me to the back and you to the front this morning, and may your word come forth in power. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God's mercy spurs us to praise him for what he has done and what is to come. God's mercy spurs us to praise him for what he has done and what is to come. Mercy spurs praise. When we hear of God's mercy, when we see God's mercy, it is to spur us forward in praise. We're told in verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he should be called John. Now think about this for a minute. She's giving birth. We're told. You recall at the beginning of John chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah while he's in the temple. He's told there that they will be having a son, and this son will prepare the way for the coming Messiah, as promised in Malachi 3 and 4. If you recall Zechariah's response, how will this be? I am of old age, and my wife is advanced years. The doubt that came over him. And if you recall from that passage, God closes Zechariah's mouth. He says, until the birth of your son. Now, we don't know exactly when Elizabeth becomes pregnant. We don't know if it was two or three months after she goes home. We don't know actually how long Zechariah has been mute, how long he hasn't spoke. Now, The truth is, at the very least, it's nine months plus whatever week this is after his birth, and Zechariah still has not been able to say a word. So these neighbors and relatives show up, and they are praising God for this blessing, for his mercy upon Elizabeth. Notice that, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, that This lack of pregnancy was considered a sign of judgment in the Old Testament, meaning it was not an actual judgment, but that is the way that the Jewish people took it. Because they saw that instruction to be fruitful and multiply, to have an heir that would come behind them, and when that was not happening, they saw that as God, or understood that as God was judging that individual. 
which we know that in Scripture that's not the case, but it's the way that they saw that. And so they're blessing Elizabeth specifically because this birth is removing her reproach. And so they ask her, what are you going to name this child? And she says, we're going to name him John. And they look at her like, you must be crazy. There is no one in your family named John. So let's go to your husband. Now think about that. I don't know if that would fly today, right? Like, Eddie, uh, you know, Marla, what are you naming your children? <laughs> okay, Eddie, what are you naming your children? Right? That's really what that would be like. So they blessed her, and then they immediately kind of turn back in reproach towards her. Like, you don't even know what you're doing. We're told then that they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John. And they all wondered. Now here's the best part. It says, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. So for the first time, he's able to speak and the first words of his mouth that come out are blessing towards God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you couldn't speak for a year, I don't know that in my own heart that the first words would be, bless God. I remember eight years ago that the first open heart surgery I had, and they took this tube out, and they took out this ventilator, and I remember I was awake and they were pulling this thing out and they said, hey, listen, you're not going to be able to speak. And I thought, you're wrong. And it was weird. I had this deep sense that I could speak. And I remember that the, the a respiratory therapist and the nurse who were standing there had turned their backs and I said, can I have a phone? And they actually, one of them actually physically jumped. She said, she goes, you spoke. I'm like, yeah, I spoke. You don't know me. I talk a lot. Um, <laughs> but the reality was, was, as I spoke, the very first thing I wanted to do was call my family. I was thankful to the Lord in my heart and my mind, but the first thing I wanted to do was call my family. Zechariah's first thing is to bless the Lord. He doesn't say, I love you, Elizabeth. He doesn't say, let me see this baby, Elizabeth. He simply starts blessing God. And it is amazing what happens. Sometimes the blessing that we experience in our life is not seen in the moment, but is endured through the trial. And it is only by going through that trial that we see the fullness and the, the greatness of who God is. I know in my life this past year that there was an event that one day I might share more with, but I walked away with a deep sense of confusion as to why the Lord allowed me to experience it. I will tell you guys that I wrestled for probably nine months wondering why God took me and allowed me to experience this emotional, mental torment under anesthesia. 
As we neared Easter, one of the things that began to rise and to be able to see was that in that torment, that one of the great sense of seeing Christ's abandonment on the cross, that Christ never cries out on the cross except at the moment when he feels abandoned by the Father. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And it's hard to describe to you, but in that moment, I felt that God had given me just a glimpse of what Jesus endured for my sake. And that the greatest pain to ever know is the abandonment of God. It is amazing that when we see the mercy of God, our only response is one of praise. Zechariah here has seen the mercy of God, not just in the birth of his son, but as the shutting of his mouth and the opening of it up and the the movement of seeing that God is bringing about the promises that he has made, that God has allowed him to be part of the redemptive plan. It says that as soon as he opened his mouth and began blessing God, that fear came across all the neighbors. You can imagine This man hasn't been able to speak. He's now speaking and blessing. It's probably a surprise. And it said, All these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. You see, seeing God's mercy will lead to blessing, but it also leads to obedience. John was named John because God had named him John. Zechariah only had to follow God in the naming of his son. Now, some of us, we might be so frustrated in the season of trial that we look at God and go, yeah, the last thing I want to do right now is obey you. But when we see the mercy of God, it will lead in us, it will cause us to walk in obedience with him. And so the mercy of God actually produces in us obedience and praise. One of the most difficult reasons for following God, one of the most difficult ones is that our lives are to be about obedience because our self wants to take over. But one of the greatest things about God's mercy is that when we understand his mercy, we no longer want to lead our own lives. Disobedience is a direct result of not fully understanding God's mercy. Because if we understood what God did for our sake and who God is, it would be our desire to serve him wholly and completely. So then we're told, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. What an awesome thing. The Holy Spirit fills Zechariah and he prophesies. Now, this prophecy is actually a praise. We see this throughout Old Testament prophecy where the prophecies are actually being communicated in praise. But unlike the word used in Luke 148, where Mary says, I am blessed among the generations, 
That word is makarios, and it means to be satisfied or happy, that the generations will see that I have good fortune, that I have been blessed, I have had the satisfaction of God. The word blessing here in this portion of the text is a different word. When Zechariah begins to bless God, and then when he starts out, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, the word is elegetos. And elegetos is different. It really is this idea of exclaiming praise. It's exclaiming the good attributes of the one that I am directing my praise towards. So when he says that he blesses, what he is actually declaring is the goodness of God, specifically the mercy of God. He is crying out and declaring, God, this is who you are. You are a God of mercy. Matthew Henry points out that here he says nothing of the private concerns of his own family. The rolling away of the reproach from it and putting of a reputation upon it by the birth of this child. There is no doubt that he found time to give thanks to God for this with his family. But in this song, he is going to wholly take up with the kingdom of the Messiah and the public blessings to be introduced by it. You see, all Zechariah wanted to do was to praise this God who had just blessed him. All he wanted to do was to praise the God who has brought to him, who has shown him his mercy. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when we talk about praise, it is so easy for praise to immediately move to thanksgiving. God, this is what you've done for me. And we think about our circumstances and our situations, and we, we run through those things. But praise is so much more than that. It is declaring the truth of who God is, what he has done, and what is to come. And God has called us to be a people who are praising him for his mercy. So how can we praise him? How can we praise him for his mercy? Well, we praise him because of the redemptive story the merciful, redemptive story found in Jesus. We praise him first because he's a present redeemer. He's a present redeemer. Verse 68 through 69 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. See, God has visited and redeemed his people he didn't sit on his throne at a distance and rule with an iron scepter. He humbled himself and he came to us in the person of Christ Jesus as a horn of salvation for us. When was the last time that you met President Biden? When was the last time that you met any of our presidents? When was the last time that you met the, the king of England or the former queen of England? We have a king who lowered himself to visit us. That's the God that we serve. 
And so many of us can get caught up in seeing God as this distant God who's away from us. And we need to see him as a king, but we also need to see him as a personal redeemer, a king who has visited us, who redeems us, who's present with us. Colossians 1 says this, He begins, Paul does, by saying, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're a part of God's kingdom because he's a present redeemer. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We praise God because we have a present Redeemer. Elisa's cousin gave her a book of her family. It was a, 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 a genealogy tree. And what's unique about this is the story is told inside this book uh, that what would be her essentially her great-grandfather to the 13th, I don't know, whatever it is. But when they came to the United States, and they were Mennonites, German Mennonites who had been living in Russia because they were pacifists. And so at the same time, Russia was pushing them into the military and they needed to go someplace else and they could come to the U.S. And so they come to the United States. And what's great is this account that's been written by this great, great, great grandfather who says, I was directed to this place, to the person who was, quote, unquote, the president And so I walked to the front door and I knocked on it and he invited me in for coffee and we sat in his front living room and drank coffee and all he describes him as is a nice man, this nice man, the president, and he shares who it was, but he had a president that sat with him just in that moment, that 15 minutes that he had with him left a lasting impression as this president worked to find them and told them where they could stay in the United States or in the country, the land that was open for them to sit on. And oh, by the way, that they would not be forced into doing anything that they chose not to do. That 15 minutes left an indelible mark. We have a redeemer who stays with us today. It's not 15 minutes. It's a lifetime. That's the present Redeemer. If 15 minutes can make a mark, what about eternity? See, Jesus doesn't come to us as a weak, timid Messiah, but as a horn of salvation. 
Don't think of this like a musical horn. This is a horn of an animal. It, it speaks to Christ's might and his power and his strength as a victor. The one who secured salvation for us. In Psalm 18.2, David declares on the day that the Lord God delivered him from his enemies, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Jesus is our stronghold, which means he's fortified, but he's also on the offense. He's working on our behalf. Jesus is the fulfillment of the line. Psalm 32, 17 declares, There I will make a horn to shout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. We have a present Redeemer. The very first way that we see God's mercy is in the present Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The second way that we see His mercy, that we praise His mercy, is that His promises are fulfilled. Promises fulfilled. The salvation have been fulfilled. The prophets spoke of the time when a Messiah would come so that we could be saved from our enemies as Luke is saying, and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, you think about that. That seems kind of interesting. If we read that just alone, we go, well, I still have some enemies, and I'm sure people hate me. He's not talking about people. God's made it clear who your enemies are. So who are our enemies? Well, it's Satan and his army. Luke 10, 17 through 20 affirms this when it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. God's promises are fulfilled. He's given us victory over the enemy. We're no longer slaves to the attempts and the attacks of the enemy. We're no longer just kind of drifting along, hoping that the enemy doesn't touch us. But we move forward in power. We acknowledge that the enemy will come to seek, to destroy, to devour. But in Christ. Our life is hidden with him who is our life. And so the promises here for a redeemer, for a savior who is going to destroy the ultimate enemy, not the ones that we perceive or think of, but the one who really matters. There is one who can devour the soul. First John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, 
We're told in verse 72, to show the mercy promised of our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God had promised to make Abraham's seed the blessing of nations, that he would be blessed and the seed of Abraham would be blessed. And this covenant that we see in Genesis 22, 17 through 17, 8 says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God has done that through Christ. Christ, the offspring of Abraham, to bless many nations, not just Israel. See, our God is not like us. He fulfills his promises perfectly. God is not like us. He fulfills his promises perfectly. Who has let you down? Who has failed their promises towards you? You have a Savior who never fails on his promises. You have a Savior who always fulfills his word. We praise him. Why? Because he promises, and he fulfills. That is an act of mercy. We don't often think of it that way, but it is an act of mercy. Ever made a promise to somebody? It's kind of a burden, isn't it? I mean, think about it. It requires you to be accountable. It makes you aware when you fail. It's clear. And some promises you walk along with and go, man, I wish I had never made this promise. God's not that way. He's made a promise to you, and he fully intends to fulfill it, and he will. That's the truth of his word, is he delights in fulfilling his promises. So then we're told that we have this present redeemer and that he fulfills his promises. Why? In verse 73 through 75, he says, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Why does he grant us this salvation? So that we can serve him without fear, always. We can serve him without fear. Because of Christ's redemption, we can serve God with security and confidence. No longer are we looking over our shoulder, weighting ourselves against his weights and balances, wondering if we've done enough good, if we can do something that might make us holy and righteous in the presence of God. 
Now it is Christ's righteousness that does it for us. We are secured with His Holy Spirit so we can serve Him without fear. That means that when I sin, I don't sit back and grovel and go, I'm totally useless from God. It means that His grace is totally sufficient for me if I confess and repent. It means that if God calls me to something that I don't want to do, that I'm scared to do, it means that He is going to be the one who moves before me and that He has already guaranteed my life with Him. 1 John 4, 14-19 says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. But this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world." There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. God's grace is given to us. It is granted to us, not because we are perfect and righteous, but because we were sinners in need of it. God knows that. And he granted us his freedom in love by granting us himself for our salvation. Granting his death and resurrection so that we might have life in him. So that we can serve him without fear. Always. Free. Able to rejoice. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is not you coming perfect to him. And the grace of God is not you coming and remaining perfect. The grace of God is that he is perfect. And he is the one who keeps you. And when you fall, when you fail, he is right there. Turn to him. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And in so doing, he restores you. And this should give us confidence because this is his loving mercy at work. I mean, think about this. How often does somebody wrong you and your first response is, okay, like you said it, sorry, let's get moving forward again. For most of us, we go, I'm going to need time with this for a little bit. Let me see that you really mean what you say. And there's a place for that. But it is to say that in our own heart of hearts, we have a God that knows our heart instantly and there is no waiting. That there is redemption. Galatians 5.13 adds, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You have been called to serve and to do so without fear. Because of Christ's righteousness and holiness. That's why. And you have been called to serve him all the days of your life. 
Matthew Henry puts it simply when he says, the design of the gospel is to encourage us in constancy and perseverance in the servant of God, service of God. Our salvation should produce in us a service towards him, a love for others. We praise him because he has allowed us to serve him without fear. Think of the servants of this world, the servants of the king, who make one mistake. Now, I'm not going to get political. This is not a political situation. It's not even something for you to think of in terms of trying to figure out where I stand politically. But it's a real-time example. The number of defense secretaries that Donald Trump went through during his presidency was astounding. And it was astounding because it seemed like at any moment when they disagreed with him, he moved them on. Again, don't read too much into this except to say that often in kingships and in authority, when you you do something against the ruler, the ruler moves you on. We have a king who doesn't move us on but restores us back and offers us even more mercy. Do you see the distinction? The distinction between the fallenness of man and the beauty, rightness, and greatness of God? God's tendency is to restore. That's his desire and his hope. It's not to remove. That's why we can serve him without fear. And that's why we can look at God and say, God, I don't get you today, but I know that you have something else. And I know that you're good because your mercy and your redeeming redemption of me makes it clear that you are good and that you have a plan and I can't yet see it, but I can serve you without fear knowing that your love is what drives you towards me. Fourth thing is he prepares the way for salvation. We can praise his mercy because his mercy, in his mercy, he prepares the way for salvation. He didn't leave people wondering about the Messiah. He provides John the Baptist, this, this child who will be known as prophet of the Most High. And this prophet is to prepare the way for salvation. Like the prophets of old, John calls people to repentance and shows them the need for forgiveness of their sins. In the same way, God has called us to prepare people for his coming by proclaiming the gospel. Romans 10, verses 14 through 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him? Preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We too have been sent to prepare the way. John the Baptist was identifying the coming Messiah, making the way, preparing the people to receive him. We now make the way for the coming of Christ in his return, calling people to repent because the day is near. God doesn't leave us alone. And he doesn't just tell us, figure it out. He prepares the way. In fact, 
Even before we hear the gospel proclaimed, God is preparing the way of salvation in our lives. The Holy Spirit is already renewing and working in our heart. Ephesians 2, 1 and 4, 5 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had for, loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God is already working in a person's life before they ever come to saving faith. He prepares the way. Isn't it amazing that so far we've heard nothing of our own work about our salvation? This is awesome. It is all he's doing. Our call is simply to respond, to serve without fear. And because he prepares the way, we're told then that because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. As a result of preparing the way, peace is found in new life. Peace is found in new life. You see, the sunrise shall visit from on high. Remember the beginning of this passage, this beginning of this prophecy? He said, we have a Savior who visited, or we have a God who visited and redeemed us. What did this God visit them with? He visits them from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Apart from Jesus, we have no peace. Apart from Jesus, we're just drifting in darkness. And apart from Jesus, there is no life. If we're in spiritual darkness, understand that the same thing is you're in death. That's what he's saying. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. But the sunrise, the Greek here is new day, new dawn. Jesus is coming with a new day and a new dawn. And this new day that has come is coming so that we might have peace and we might be able to see the way to peace, which is found not in directions, but in a person, and that person is Jesus. And better yet, that new day to come is a day in which we stand in the presence of Jesus every day when he returns to redeem his people. You see, peace is found in new life. And that's what is being promised here because of God's tender mercy. He wants us to experience his peace. He doesn't want us floundering. He doesn't want us in the shadow of death. He doesn't want us in the darkness. But he has made a way for us to walk in light and to guide our steps in his peace. Well, I tried my best to give you as many P words as I could 
to remind you of praise, but serve threw us off. The truth is, is that God is a present redeemer who is a promise fulfiller, who's prepared the way for salvation and where peace is found in new life so that we might serve him without fear always. My hope is this morning is that we praise God and we praise him for mercy, a mercy which is seen in new light, not in darkness. This mercy of the present Redeemer, of the promises fulfilled, of the service without fear, of the preparing of the way, and of the peace found in new life. We're told in verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. John became exactly what God had declared through his prophet and through this prophecy. Do we praise God for his mercy? His mercy displayed to us in his redemptive plan as opposed to praising him for the mercy that we think we should have in this life. How many of us, because of this mercy, are ready to send our own children off and say, you live in the wilderness. You will be persecuted. You will be alone. You will be lonely. But I've got a greater plan for them than you can ever imagine. How many of us are ready to do the same? You see, God did not call us to safety. He called us to serve him without fear. And that service without fear means that the safest place we can be is in the mercy of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your mercy and for the wonderful mercy that you've called us to declare today through praise. May we leave God excited about the mercy that you have displayed towards us, and may we spend our day praising you for the redemptive plan and the redemptive work that you have provided towards us. Lord, we rejoice over the birth of John the Baptist. We rejoice more over the birth of Christ, and we rejoice even greater over the merciful manner in which you have dealt with us because of your great mercy, your good character. Lord, let us praise you today with full delight, and we ask this in your name. Amen.